So welcome everybody and happy Valentine's Day. Today is a great day to talk about hearts. And so I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, in a counseling book far, far away, I read a story. It's a great analogy about the condition of our hearts. And I have searched high and I have searched low and I cannot find the original source of this analogy. So I'm going to have to just tell you the story as best I can. And so there was a man who decided that today was the day that he was gonna mow the lawn. He was one of those crazy people that loved mowing. He took extra care of his lawnmower, like after every mowing, he wiped it down, rinsed it off, so it was nice and clean and shiny on the outside. It was a beautiful day. The grass was getting a little tall. It was soft and green. And uh, so before he started, he wanted to make sure everything was in order. So he's adjusting the height and he you know, took off the oil cap and checked to make sure everything was great, everything looked good. And so he started the mower. He cranked it up and got ready to go. Got that first line in. What he didn't realize was that he forgot to put the oil cap back on the, the little engine thing. And that was fine um, while everything was, while the engine was cold. Everything worked great. Going up and down that, you know, making the little lines in the lawn, it was perfect. But when that engine got hot, when some heat was added, all the sludge and the oil and the yuck that was in that engine came spewing out. And that sludgy, oily mess covered everything within reach. It covered the lawnmower, it covered the man, it covered the beautiful soft green grass. Anything that was within reach got covered in sludge. And so what does the story of a man and his shiny clean uh, on the outside lawnmower have to do with the condition of our hearts? And I will tell you, that's what I'm here for. When the issues of life are cold and there's not any heat, things stay together and we're able to maintain control of our lives and keep everything in order. Just like that lawnmower, we can look clean on the outside, but you add a little heat and all the things that are hidden in our heart, that sludge and the yuck that is deep down in there, comes spewing out, covering everyone with a dis disgusting mix of anger, bitterness, harsh words, and adverse reactions. It spews out of control and it covers everything within reach with this stick this thick, sticky, stinky sludge that is really hard to clean off. And just because something is clean and it looks nice on the outside, it doesn't mean that it's nice and clean on the inside. And Jesus even taught us as much. Um, could someone read for us Matthew 23, 27 to 28? I mean, he just really tells it like it is, doesn't he? 
And so we know that it is what on the that is what is on the inside that counts. And every one of us has a heart condition, and it's a problem that humanity has had since the fall. The Bible talks about the condition of the heart, and it's not pretty. Let's look at Jeremiah seventeen nine. So what did that passage say about the heart? It's deceitful. It's sick. <clears throat> Let's look at Matthew 15, 18 to 20. not the most encouraging message you've heard all year. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. What does Jesus say comes out of the heart? Evil thoughts. What else? Murder. What else? Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. All of these things come out of the heart. Um, who has Luke 6.45? So according to that passage, what comes out of our mouth has a direct correlation to what's in our heart. So just like my lawnmower example, you can be shiny and clean on the outside, but if you don't deal with that sludge that's in your heart, things are going to come out sideways. And a textbook example of a serious heart condition lies within our passage today. So let me set the stage. We're, you know, we're in Esther. We've, our dear friend Haman is on cloud nine. Recently, he's gotten a sweet promotion, and he's per persuaded the king to annihilate his sworn enemy, the Jews. And he's just come from a private banquet with Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus, and where his presence was requested by name. Oh, happy day, like best day ever. While the Jews are living in fear for their lives, Haman is feasting with the king. And then he's been invited to a second banquet? Oh my word, hashtag best day ever. And so we get to our text today, and I'm just, I'm gonna read it out. Um, and it says, so this is Esther 5, verses 9 to 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, uh, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. 
Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cupids high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully and with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So let's just pause for a second. Let's, let's look a little deeper into Haman. His name, according to the Strong's Concordance, means magnificent and illustrious. And boy, did he think he was magnificent. Warren Wearsby, in talking about Haman, provides some interesting details that I think are worth noting about Haman's ancestry. I'm not sure if Morgan had covered this or not, but he was an Agagite, which meant that he was from an area known as Agag and was likely a descendant of the person Agag, which would mean he was an Amalekite. So we've got to do all this little do-do-do-do-do. But this brings depth to his hatred of the Jews. The Amalekites were sworn enemies of God's people after they attacked them in Exodus 17. And those of you who have been on our journey with Samuel on Sunday mornings may remember that Saul, you know, when God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites and he didn't do it, he lost his kingdom over it. God had said, these people are wicked destroy them, and Saul didn't do it. He lost the kingdom. And so one of the surviving descendants of the Amalekites was Haman, and he was determined to annihilate his people's ancient enemy, which happened to be the Jews. So Warren Wearsby says this is another stage in the age-old conflict between the flesh and the spirit, Satan and the Lord, and the way of faith and the way of the world. God had defined the Amalekites as wicked people deserving to be blotted out, and you can see that wickedness in the person of Haman. Haman was magnificent on the outside, rising in power and influence in Susa, but his whole world revolved around Haman. On the outside, we had glam, but on the inside, we see a heart filled with the sludge of wickedness. Warren Wearsby notes that everything about Haman is hateful. You can't find one thing about this man worth praising. In fact, everything about Haman, God hated. Well, let's look at some things that God hates. Let's look in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, hasty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I mean, does that passage not like a little checklist for Haman? But we wouldn't necessarily see all that yuck when the temperature in his life was cool. It's only when the heat is cranked up that all that yuck comes spewing out. And so let's look back in our text for today at verse 9, and we'll, we see a happy, prideful Haman coming back from a feast with the queen and the king. So who has um, 
actually, I think I'm supposed to read this part. Um, so in the first part of Esther 5, verse 9, um, it says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. So what does it say about his emotional state? He was happy, joyful. Happy, happy, happy. Yes, he was showing joy. He was visibly happy. He probably had a little skip in his step. He was probably doing a little dance, you know, walking down the street. His pride had been fed, and he was stuffed. On the outside, he looked great, but lurking underneath was some sludge that was about to pop out. So the last part of verse 9, so look, in the te- look at, your, at your text in the last part of verse 9. What happens in that very same verse? What happens after the bud? He's filled with wrath. What did he see? Yeah. Mordecai refused to honor him, and he was filled with wrath. So in one moment, in one second, we went from, oh, happy day, you know, this is the best day ever, to filled with wrath. And, you know, Mordecai was probably out of his sackcloth and ashes and back to his normal post. And he was not afraid of Haman. And this was a huge snub. Ian Duguid said, Haman's failure to instill either fear or respect in his enemy pricked his bubble and turned his joy into wrath. Haman's whole world revolved around his fragile ego. His emotional strings were being pulled by his idol, which was public respect. When that idol was fed, he felt good. But when his idol was challenged, it led him to malice and anger, the same malice that caused his earlier decree to eliminate the Jewish people. His joy and anger were simply the outward expressions of his heart's idolatry. So Haman's heart condition included pride and an idolization of himself. And then the sludge that spewed out when heated was malice and anger and rage. Remember, his whole world revolved around him. And Mordecai's refusal to worship Haman was gasoline on the fire that turned up the heat in his heart. Ian Dugan also said that Haman is a case study of what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. So what's an idol of the heart? It is simply anything that we choose over God. An idol of the heart is anything that we choose over God. Kyle Eidelman in his book, Gods at War, says when someone or something replaces the Lord in the position of glory in our lives, then that person or thing by definition has become our God. So this is a rhetorical question. Just think about this. What sets you off quicker than Mordecai not bowing to Haman? That could be a clue to an idol in your heart. Here's a great way to tell if you have any idols in your heart. What makes you angry? Anger is the fruit of an idol that has been pricked. Robert Jones in his book, Uprooting Anger, defines it as... He says, our anger, our anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. I'm going to say it again. Anger is our whole person 
active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. May not be real evil. Say it one more time. Our anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Anger always starts in the heart with evil desires and wrong beliefs, lust, and lies. So my question is still, what idols do you hold in your heart? But Elizabeth, you say, I'm a Christian. I don't worship any idols. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I thought that too until I got sandpapered um, a few years ago by the Holy Spirit. So um, in Kyle Eidelman's book, he really brings this part home when he, he writes. He said, in Psalm 106, 19, it says, The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. That's not a good trade, he said. They traded the creator God for a God of their own creation. Are we really any different? We replace God with statues of our own creation. Maybe it's a house that we're constantly upgrading or beautifying, a promotion that comes with a corner office, a team that wins a championship, a body that is toned and fit. We work hard at molding and creating our golden calves he says, I already know what you're thinking. You could say that about anything. You could take any issue, anything someone devoted anything to, and make it out to be idolatry. Exactly, he says. Anything at all can become an idol once it becomes a substitute for God in our lives. Now, I do not have any golden calves in my life, um, but there are definitely some idols that I substitute for God. And I realized this a few years ago. I was getting really angry. This is y'all. <laughs> this is y'all. So I was getting really angry when my pups would wake me up at night or my husband would like, he like kicks his leg and shakes the whole bed. And I mean, I was getting angry, not just annoyed, like mad. Like, oh, I'm like, don't mess with my sleep. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Well, Ian Duguid says, what is, what is it that causes us to be angry out of all proportion to the offense? There is a clue that one of our idols is being threatened. So apparently a subset of pride and the worship of self is the worship of comfort. The worship of comfort. The Holy Spirit convicted me that comfort and being comfortable was an idol, and when that idol was pricked, look out. I am serious, like fire could shoot out of my eyes. And so if we, if we go out of, you know, if we go back to our working definition of anger, which is our whole person, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil, I perceived an evil being done against me, messing with the comfort of my sleep. My response was whole personed, grumbling under my breath, stomping around to get dressed, to take those stupid dogs, to go stupid potty, you know, slamming the door, flipping the light. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And at the time, I was doing some biblical counseling with, with someone who was having, I mean, a real anger problem with her children when they, when they would just do things that were being kids, but it would mess up her perfect plan for the day. Um, 
And I remember saying to her, you know, I think perfection for you is an idol. And the Holy Spirit was like, Elizabeth, <laughs> who was sandpapering me, um, one of your idols is comfort and selfishness. Um, and so I realized I have work to do myself, right? And I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm asking God to forgive me when I get angry over things that prick that comfort and selfish idols. Um, and it looks something like this. I'm like, God, forgive me for placing my comfort above the needs of others and help me to joyfully serve even if it's inconvenient. And I'm not where I need to be, um, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. I am still a work in progress, and my anger still gets there at times, but I'm finding myself asking, wait, where is that coming from? Instead of just doing over it. Um, and so, okay, so let's get back to our text. Um, did I give out um, Esther 5, verses 10 to 12? Okay. So back in Esther 3, verse 5, it tells us that Haman was filled with fury when Mordecai refused to bow. But instead of killing Mordecai on the spot, he paused and devised a scheme to annihilate all the Jews. <laughs> um, remember, they're his, the, his sworn enemy. And so, yes, Haman had a wicked heart, but notice he's not one of those reactionary guys. I mean, he could have, he could have just mowed Mordecai down right then, just push. But he had the clarity of mind to think about it first and come up with a better evil plan. He was a thinker. He was like an evil thinker. <laughs> and so, in, in verse 10, Haman doesn't react right away to this latest knock at his ego. He, no, he restrained himself, and he went home and bragged about all his accomplishments to his family. I'm so rich. I've got all these sons. I've been promoted to chief of staff to the king, and the queen even digs me. And, you know, it kind of reminds me, I don't, I'm probably dating myself, but it kind of reminds me of um, Al Franken's character, Stuart Smalley, on SNL several years ago. Um, he would, st the character would stare into the mirror and repeat positive affirmations. And he would, he would look in the mirror and he'd be like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I'm like, that's Haman, that's Haman right there. And so what's one word that you might use to describe Haman or even our, our dear Stuart Smalley? What's a word that you might describe? Conceited, yeah. Prideful, maybe. Self-absorbed, arrogant, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, pride can be insidious. Um, and Warren Wiersbe has a lot to say about that. He says that pride blinds people to what they really are and makes them insist on having what they really don't deserve. And he says that pride is the very essence of sin. God hates it. It was pride that turned Lucifer into Satan, and Satan used pride to tempt Eve. 
William Barclay writes, Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all the other sins come. So in order for Haman to find comfort from Mordecai's perceived disrespect, he had to feed his pride. It made him feel better in the moment, but as Ian Dugan tells us, when we feed our idolatries rather than starving them, we end up emptier than before in ever greater bondage than before, and it is only a matter of time before something else reignites our negative emotions. And we see that right, we see that right away in the next few verses. Um, what is Esther 5, um, 13 to 14? It didn't matter to Haman how much he was honored and blessed. And even though his pride was fed that day, when he saw Mordecai, those negative emotions returned with a vengeance. And his pride led to malice. More from my man, Warren Wearsby. He says, malice has to act. Malice is a deep-seated hatred that brings delight if our enemy suffers pain if and if I, excuse me, malice is a deep-seated hatred that brings to light if our enemy suffers and pain if our enemy succeeds. Malice can never forgive. It must always take revenge. Malice has a good memory for hurts and a bad memory for kindness. And we see this play out in Haman's actions. His pride was stoked, and instead of his family and friends giving him biblical counsel and pointing out truth and love of the pride in his heart, they instead, they fed his ego and helped him devise a a plan against Mordecai, an evil plan. He sought revenge. Was Haman's behavior and response unique to Haman? Nope. We are all capable of such because of what flows out of our heart. Remember our verses earlier, the heart is deceitful above all things. The condition of the heart is timeless wisdom, like this from Proverbs. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation just because I like like it in that. Um, Proverbs 5, verses 21 to 23. It says, For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Haman's pride infected his heart with sludge that spewed out in a hateful decree with a future plan to destroy all the Jews and an immediate plan to take revenge on Mordecai with the construction of the gallows. And I don't think any of us here are as far gone as Haman. Like he is like the worst example, or maybe the best example of uh, wickedness in our heart. But we are all born with a wicked heart nature. And it's filled with the sludge of our idols. And when the engine of life is cool and that sludge can stay down at the bottom of our heart, we can try to pretend that things are great and we don't have any idols. But man, you add some heat 
And that sludgy anger spews out of us and covers everything that is close to us. Everything that is dear to us gets covered in the sludge of anger, bitterness, malice, and sometimes even revenge. And so today is the day that we're going to get a heart checkup. So ask God to help you identify the sludge and the idols in your heart so that you can repent and seek forgiveness. And let's clean all that junk out. Let's get it out today. And so we pray Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24. Did I? I don't think I gave that. Did I give that to anybody? No? Okay. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it in the New King James Version because I like it in that version. Um, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. And so I come to the end of my message and I realize that I haven't really given you any encouragement and hope. But I think the encouragement and the hope for the condition of our hearts is found in this verse. We're asked God to search us. He already knows. We ask him to help us see the sludge that is in our hearts and lead me in the way everlasting. He is the way. Living Living our lives his way instead of our ways is the answer um, to the sludge that is in our hearts. And he is faithful, and he wants to show us that. And so I just encourage you today to just ask God to examine your heart and show you the way out. And now it's time for our small groups. <laughs>